Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I'm on my travels. I uh, left uh, England, uh, it feels like about a week ago, but it was just on Friday morning in England. Then I arrived in uh, KL yesterday morning. And then on Tuesday, I go to Singapore just briefly. And then I'll go to Melbourne, where I'm preaching the Bible at a convention. And then I'll go back to Oxford. So I'm traveling. And if you were here last week, you'll know that the Lord Jesus is traveling. You might say that Luke's gospel is a travel book. And there's a big turning point in Luke's gospel. And you saw it last week, if you were here. Chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that sets the agenda for the rest of the book. Jesus is traveling. His destination is not actually Jerusalem. Notice what it says. The days drew near for him to be taken up. His destination is heaven. And sure enough, at the end of Luke's gospel, he ascends into heaven. But his journey to heaven will take him via Jerusalem, where he must die. That is the path that we too must follow. We too are destined for heaven. We're going to be raised up with him. But we must get to Jerusalem, or get to heaven rather, via the cross. So Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And here in these last chapters of Luke's gospel, we find Jesus on a journey and he's inviting his followers to travel with him. And if you like, we're on that journey still today. We're traveling through life with Jesus on the road to heaven, but via the cross. There'll be suffering and challenges along the way. And if you were here last week, you'll see the commitment that was involved in traveling with Jesus. He's to be above our home. And there's a huge commitment, isn't there? To home. We like to feel at home. But Jesus says, the Son of Man knew nowhere to lay his head. And following Jesus is to be more important to us than our homes. It's even to be more important than our families. It's one of the things I most respect about Asian culture is the respect for the family. That's largely missing, I fear, in Western society. And Jesus affirms that. He affirms the commandments. You're to honor your father and mother. And yet, given that commitment, he says there's to be a higher commitment. Following Jesus is to be more important than even father and mother. And you saw last week that, uh, if necessary, that means leaving them behind, not waiting till they die, not burying them first. He's got to come above everything else as you travel on the journey to heaven by Jerusalem. And today we learn a little bit more about what it means to travel with Jesus through life. It means a commitment to sharing a message. He's already sent out the 12, the 12 apostles in chapter 9 and verse 1. And here he extends the mission to 72 who are sent on ahead of him on the journey. Traveling with Jesus involves telling other people about the good news of the gospel. I wonder how you feel about that. Maybe that there are some here today and you're not Christians. I wonder how you feel about people telling 
the Christian message. Certainly, many in Britain do not like the thought of evangelism. It sounds very arrogant to them that people should go to those who don't believe a message and tell them about it. It implies that you've got the truth and they haven't. Sounds very arrogant. Wonder how you feel about it as a Christian to know that your response to the Lord Jesus is to tell others about him. Well, for us, it won't mean risking our lives, although there are brothers and sisters around the world for whom this task of evangelism does mean risking their lives. But for us, it can mean social embarrassment. When we share our faith, some people don't want to hear. Perhaps they have another religion or no religion at all. And they don't like the fact that we long that they would become Christians as well. They might reject the message, or they might uh, be nervous. You might be thinking of a friend to invite tomorrow night. And maybe you ask them, and they say, oh, thank you very much, I'll come. But it might be that they don't want to come, and it's all a bit embarrassing. In Britain, as Western culture moves increasingly away from its foundations in the Christian gospel, telling others about Jesus is increasingly hard. Well, I shouldn't be surprised about that. Because actually Jesus says, that's what we should expect. As we tell others about him, we can expect not always to be welcomed. He's saying, verse 3, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Now, what lamb wants to go in the midst of wolves? would be a very strange lamb that got excited about meeting the wolves. Very strange indeed. So if you're a bit nervous about sharing your faith, about this part of the journey through life with Jesus, you're not alone. And you recognize something, that it is a bit like going as a sheep amongst wolves. So why should we bother? What will encourage us in this task? There are three things, three great truths that I think Jesus is teaching in this passage that I hope will spur us on and encourage us. Yes, first of all, to think about who we could invite tomorrow night, but then to continue sharing the message of Christ for the rest of our journey on earth as we travel to heaven. Here's truth number one. You've got the outline, I think, in your notes. God is in charge, not us. We're looking particularly at verses one to four. God is in charge, not us. Notice how it begins. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. This was not their initiative. It's the Lord, the divine Son of God, who sets the agenda. Mission comes from him. God is in charge, not us. Now, if that wasn't the case, the task of sharing our faith with others would be completely overwhelming, would it not? Just recently, we've sent out as a, a missionary from our church, a lady who's gone to the Horn of Africa, to a country, Djibouti, where there are a tiny number of known believers. Tiny number. It's one of the smallest Christian populations in the world. Now that could be overwhelming for her, couldn't it? To think, here am I being sent out as a missionary to a country where there are virtually no known believers. 
And maybe you think of your particular office or the block where you live or maybe your family. And you think, I'm the only one. Or there are tiny numbers of believers in my social group. Well, if we think it's hard, think of what it must have been like for the disciples in Jesus' day. There were no followers of Jesus apart from them, and he sent them out as lambs among wolves. It could be overwhelming until we remember this wonderful truth. God is in charge. Mission does not start with our initiative. It doesn't start with the committee of the disciples deciding what to do next. No, the Lord sent out the 72. Why 72? <laughs> well, there's uh, debate about this. I think it may well be because of that passage we just had read from the book of Numbers. There, there were 70 elders that Moses shared his responsibility with. And it may be that's in the background. Or quite likely, and uh, I prefer this explanation, it could be to do with Genesis chapter 10, where you have a genealogy of Noah's sons and their descendants. It's called the table of nations. And those descendants of Noah multiplied and became the founding fathers of many nations. And there are 70 nations in the Hebrew, 72 in the Septuagint, which is the Latin translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And that might explain why some versions of the manuscripts refer to 70 being sent out and others to 72 being sent out. So it could be that this is an indication that ultimately Jesus' message is to go to all nations, the 70 or the 72. We're not actually told. But he sends out these 70, these 72. And he says to them, verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I love that. His main concern here is not the lack of converts, but the lack of colleagues. There's going to be a huge harvest. There's no doubt about that, because the Lord's in charge. And the sovereign Lord, before the beginning of time, has called the people to himself. He sent the Lord Jesus to fulfill his mission. He's, the Lord Jesus sent out the disciples to gather in the, crop, the harvest. Do you remember that wonderful time where uh, Paul is summoned, I think, to Macedonia? There are many people in this place. There's a huge harvest out there. But the problem is there are not enough harvesters to bring in the crop. And so Jesus encourages them to pray. The future is not in doubt. There's going to be a huge multitude gathered to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That must have seemed a bit ridiculous in those very early days when there was a tiny number of believers. Do you know at the beginning of Acts, Luke's second volume, Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, gathers the 12, or the 11 at that time, because Judas has abandoned them. He gathers the 11 and he gives them their orders Till the last days. He says, you would have been my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, the area just around Jerusalem, Samaria, the first step outside Judaism, and to the ends of the earth. Just 11 of them to take the good news of Jesus to all nations. Ridiculous. 
You might know the story, the invented story, but it's a nice one, of the Lord Jesus ascending into heaven. And there he's greeted by the, the angels applauding him for the amazing work he's done. And then a number of them uh, push Gabriel towards Jesus. They've got a question. And Gabriel goes forward and says, Lord, we've just got a question, me and the other angels. It's, it's amazing what you've done through your death and resurrection to make it possible for people to come to know you. Amazing. But our question is, how are you going to make sure that the world out there, this vast world, hears about what you've done, that they might come to know you? And Jesus points down to a little group of 11 individuals who just a few days before were so terrified that they'd huddled in the upper room, frightened that they'd be the next to be killed. And Jesus said, I've told that lot to tell the world. And Gabriel says, ah, that's very interesting, Lord. And what other plans have you got? And Jesus in the story says, I have no other plans. And yet it happened. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, that little group began to take the message to the nations. And multiple numbers of people came to Christ. It, it might sound ridiculous, but it's happened. And the story of global evangelization is one of the most remarkable stories in the history of the world, and it's still happening today. Let me give you some statistics. In 1900, at the beginning of the 20th century, roughly 10% of the population of Africa professed faith in Christ. That's about 8 million people. A hundred years later, in 2000, 50%, about 51 million. Astonishing growth. Or think about Korea. The first Protestant church was established in Korea in 1884. Now, in South Korea, there are over 70,000 churches. It's one of the fastest growing churches in the world. Or take Nepal. Until 1960, no Christian was officially allowed to live in Nepal. Now there are over half a million followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is in charge. It's a wonderful truth. And with that in mind, he urges them to pray. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's been called the other Lord's Prayer. We talk about the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I guess we pray that prayer. The Lord told us to pray it. So we pray the Lord's Prayer. But here's another prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. But I wonder, do we pray this other Lord's Prayer? Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into the harvest field. There are so, so many people in this magnificent city, Kuala Lumpur, who do not know the Lord Jesus. And we need to be praying, Lord, please send out workers into this harvest field. And not just this city, but so many people in the, in the nation of Malaysia who don't know the Lord Jesus. Lord, send out laborers into the harvest field. Or think of this region compared to many other countries in this region. There are far more believers here 
and need to be praying. Sometimes people from Europe are sending people to come and serve the Lord Jesus Christ in places in this region, Laos and Vietnam, places where there are not very many believers. Much easier for you to get there. Lord, from Malaysia, send out laborers into the harvest field in this region round about and to the ends of the earth. You think of your street, your family, your school, your workplace. Lord, send out laborers into the harvest field. And of course, as we're praying, we need to recognize that we may well be the answer to that prayer. And so he urges them to pray for others. And then verse 3, he says, I am sending you. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you as lambs amongst wolves. And he's sending us. You think, who is the missionary? To my friends, my family, my colleagues. You are that missionary. And we need, if we trust in the Lord as the Lord of the harvest, not only to pray, but to trust. And so he says, verse 4, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. It's a rather strange command, isn't it? Don't take any money with you. No provisions at all. He's saying you've got to trust in God. Now, this was only for a brief period to teach believers a lesson. In fact, don't look it up, but let me read it to you. Right at the end of this gospel, Jesus very specifically brings that period of time where believers were not to take money and provisions with them as they went out on mission. He brings that period to an end. He says just before he's arrested, Luke 22, verse 35, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Yes, he taught them dependence on him, trust. And now it's not unspiritual to make plans. In fact, we should make plans. We should take precautions. We should bring provisions. But don't forget the lesson that those first disciples learned that God is the Lord of the harvest, and he will provide every step of the way. Trust in him. And it's just a danger, I think, that many of us who are materially prosperous compared to most in the world, spiritually prosperous compared to many, we've got so many spiritual resources, can forget to trust in the Lord. We can just presume that people will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to depend depend on him. My, my old boss uh, didn't like computers very much. And I started working for him at a time when there were not many computers. They were just coming into church life. And he loved a cartoon from an, from an American Christian leadership magazine. There was a pastor. And there in the background was an office, clearly the church office, one of these huge American churches with Lots and lots of different computers. And the pastor was saying, it's wonderful. We've got so many computers, we don't have to pray anymore. It was an ironic point that was being made. There's a danger. We can rely on all our resources so we don't think we need to pray. We've got so many congregations in the cathedral. God is blessing us. We don't have to pray anymore. 
We've got so many pastors. We've got such good buildings and resources. We've got so many good books. We don't need to pray anymore. Jesus says, no, never forget this important lesson of dependence. Mission is God's work. He and not us is the Lord of the harvest. And he invites us to take part in his work. What a huge privilege that is. Oh, yes, there's a challenge there. We're going out as lambs amongst wolves. But what an encouragement. Because the impossible becomes possible when it's God who's doing it. And he's doing it for us. God is in charge, not us. Let's look at the second truth, which I hope will encourage and spur us on in this great task of sharing the gospel with others. It's there in your sheets. The gospel is liberating, not oppressive. We're particularly looking, I suppose, at verses 5 to 9 here. Verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. What a lovely message that is. A message of peace. It's a message of the kingdom of God. Luke's gospel pronounces the coming of the kingdom of God. Right at the beginning, the angel speaks to Mary about the son she'll bear, who will be the son of God. And the angel tells her, he'll be given the throne of David. And his kingdom will never end. And then Luke tells us how Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom of God. That's the message he sent the 12 out to preach. It's the message he sends the 72 out to preach. It's there at the end of verse 9. The kingdom of God has come near to you. It's there again at the end of verse 11. The kingdom of God has come near. A message of peace. A message of the kingdom. That's wonderful. And yet I think to many ears, the message of God's kingdom coming is not heard as good news. It's heard as profoundly challenging news. The sad fact is that although we've been made in God's world, uh, we've been made by God and we live in God's world and he is the king, we human beings like to live independently of the king and as it were put a little crown on our own heads. And in recent centuries, we've made a philosophy out of that. I'll be talking this afternoon about transgender issues. And I think behind uh, what is a very real pastoral problem for some is also an increasing ideology that you are who you declare yourself to be. It's up to us to define ourselves. And so we can even declare what gender we want to be. And that is one manifestation of the sin that is in all of us. That we don't want a king to rule over us. We want to define who we are and decide how we'll live our own lives. We're the king in our world, thank you very much. And so the message that there is another king who's the living God who made us, far from being encouraging, can sound profoundly challenging, and not just challenging, but to some, it can sound very restrictive. And I find when people hear about God as their king, 
they just imagine that he's going to stop them enjoying life. He's going to start giving them all sorts of rules to live by. It's about being told what to believe and how to behave. Doesn't sound good news. The French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau once said this, man is born free and yet everywhere he's in chains. So the assumption is we're free individuals but we're enslaved by external authorities. Might be political authorities or social authorities, morals and traditions that prevent you defining who you are and living as you want. And Rousseau would include, I think, religions in that. Religions, and he'd include Christianity, are all oppressive to the human individual, preventing our freedom. And so when people hear the good news of the kingdom of God, very often they don't hear it as good news. It sounds oppressive, but it's quite the opposite. Rousseau said, the human beings are born free, but the Bible says we are not born free. We were created free, but we chose slavery instead of freedom. You see, freedom is about living as we were designed to live. The old illustration, I'm sure you've heard, of the goldfish in a bowl. And you imagine you go into a room and you see uh, your friends have just got a goldfish and you think to yourself, poor goldfish, how restricting living in that water, in the bowl. I know what I'll do, I'll be very kind, I'll set the goldfish free. And you take the goldfish out of the water and set it free into the room outside and place it on a table. Do you think the goldfish is thanking you? It's spluttering. It can't survive. It's born for the environment of water. And if you take it out of that environment, it's not freeing, it's enslaving. And we human beings, we're designed to live under the loving authority of God. And when in the Garden of Eden, human beings rejected that authority, they were making a bid for freedom, but actually what they chose was slavery. Because we're made to live in the environment of a loving relationship with the living God who is our King. And the reality is, because of sin, all of us are slaves. There's a story from Australia about a snake that slithered into a room one day from outside. No human beings were at home, but it noticed there in a cage was a budgerigar. And it thought to itself, that'll make a very good lunch. So the snake slithered up into the cage and it took one gobble and the budgerigar went down the snake's stomach. Now you probably know that snakes take quite a long time to digest their food. And so you've got a, a very thin snake with a budgerigar-sized bubble in its stomach. And the result was it couldn't get out of the cage. And so when the human beings came back and didn't hear the familiar noise of the budgerigar in the cage and went to see what was wrong and saw a snake with a budgerigar-sized bubble in its stomach, unable to escape from the cage, they weren't happy, and of course, they killed the snake. Well, the snake was enslaved by its own appetite, you might say. And we human beings choose sin, and once we've chosen sin, we are enslaved by sin. And I think many of us know that. We can't stop doing it. 
We say, I'll never do that again, but we keep on doing it. And not only do we keep on doing it, we can't by ourselves escape from the penalty of sin, which is separation from God. But Jesus Christ came to the world to bring freedom. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He's bringing freedom. He's bringing us, as it were, back into the water of a relationship with him. We deserve the, sl the slavery that we've chosen, but he's come to redeem us. Famously, in chapter 4, as he announces his manifesto, quoting from Isaiah 61, he says, I've come to bring liberation for the captives. Jesus Christ was himself entirely free. He always did exactly what God his Father wanted him to do. He was never enslaved by sin. But on the cross, he stood in for others and took upon himself the penalty for our sin so that we can be set free. And now he offers freedom to the captives. He says, if you trust in me, you can be sure I've taken the penalty so you can now come back into friendship with me and friendship with my Father. And so the announcement is, verse 5, one of peace. It's a great message. Peace. There's an exciting escalation of the mission of God. Jesus to the 12, the 12 to the 72. And here in verse 5, we find them in pairs, going to remote houses, knocking on the door and saying, peace to this house, as the ambassadors of God. They come with a message of peace. But that peace needs to be received if it's to be enjoyed. So if they weren't welcomed by that house, they'd move on, and the house would not receive the peace that came from knowing God through Jesus Christ. But if they were welcomed in, then, verse 6, your peace will rest on them. We can imagine them staying in the house, explaining more about the wonderful message that Jesus had, had come to bring peace, that human beings had come to know him. Same pattern in the town. Verse 8, if you're welcomed, stay and eat. Heal the sick, verse 9, as a wonderful visual aid that things are being put right, that this message is not oppressive. It's life-giving and life-enhancing. Verse 9, the kingdom of God is near you. Now, in these days after Jesus ascended into heaven, we're not promised healing. It can happen, but we're not promised it. But certainly we should expect that the kingdom of God will make a difference in the here and now as people receive the wonderful gift of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit in their lives. And people should be noticing that the kingdom of God has come, that the peace of God is transforming us. And that gives power to the message. I've seen it time and time again. I think of one young man who, uh, when we had a kind of greeting time in church, I sat next to him. I'd never seen him before. And I said, hello, um, what's your name? He said, I'm Tom. I said, what should I know about Tom? He said, well, I'm not a Christian. I said, well, you're very welcome. Have uh, you been here before? He said, yes, I've been here for a few weeks. I said, why are you coming? He said, because I met some people and I've never met anyone like them before. And I thought, I want to spend time with people like that. 
So when they invited me to church, I thought to myself, I don't want to go there. I've never been to church. But I do like these people, and I want to spend time with them, so I'll go. He said, I came to church, and I found that the people there were like my friends. That they had something. I didn't know what they had, but they had something. They're just different. And so I've kept coming because I like being with these people. And the more I've come, he said, I've just begun to start listening. At first I wasn't listening. I was just enjoying the people. But now I've begun to listen. A few weeks later, he wonderfully came to faith in Jesus Christ. And he visibly changed. You could see it even in his eyes. There was a joy. We had a a church uh, party a few weeks later, just a celebration at the end of the term. And he came up to me and said, you know, I never realized you could have so much fun without being drunk. (laughs) He's been transformed. And then wonderfully, I saw friends of him coming to church. And do you know why they came? Because they noticed the difference in him. And they thought, there's something, what's happened to Tom? We'd better find out more. And some of his friends have now come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful, liberating message. The kingdom of God is near. Now we can be set free from the slavery of sin and know life as it was meant to be lived in friendship with God. Do you think Jesus will ruin your life? Or does part of us think that, oh, I couldn't really tell the Christian message to my friends because they might not like it. Do you think Jesus will ruin their lives? God loved the world so much that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross that we might be set free from the slavery of sin. That's how much he loves us. He's not going to ruin our lives. He brings wonderful peace. The gospel is liberating, not oppressive. So maybe people have got completely the wrong end of the stick, and they think, oh, it's going to be a bad message. It's not. It's a wonderful message. I hope that will encourage us in the task of sharing our faith with others. God is in charge, not us. The gospel is liberating, not oppressive. And here's the final encouragement to us. Judgment is a reality, not a fiction. We're looking mainly at verses 10 to 16. See, the gospel is not just a message of liberation for the present. It's also a warning about the future. Look at verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. It's a very solemn public gesture and declaration, isn't it? To wipe off the dust from your feet. And what you're saying, or those early missionaries were saying, is your rejection of the kingdom of God does not change the reality. God comes with a loving offer of amnesty. If you imagine, here are people who've been in rebellion against the true king of the universe. And you can imagine that when that king enters the world in the person of his son, he'd come to punish them. But the first thing he does is not come to punish them. He comes with an offer of amnesty and forgiveness despite their rebellion. In fact, he died to make that possible. 
It's a wonderful message. But if that message is rejected, then comes the very clear warning. He will come again. And when he comes, there will be judgment. Verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Sodom, the town in the Old Testament times, above all, along with Gomorrah, most known for its terrible wickedness. It'll be even more tolerable for Sodom on that day than for the town that's turned away from the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn here about the terrible hardness of the human heart. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, places of uh, opposition to Israel in the old days, they would have repented long ago. See, here are villages, Chorazin and Bethsaida, where the Lord Jesus Christ himself came. And he spoke. They heard him with their own ears. They saw with their own eyes the amazing miracles that he performed. And yet still, they rejected him. That shows the hardness of the human heart. People say, don't they, oh, well, if only I had more evidence, I'd believe. But actually, again and again and again, the problem is not lack of evidence. The problem is within the human heart. We don't want to believe. And here were people who even saw the, the, the living God and heard him with their own ears, and yet they rejected him. What more could God do? The terrible hardness of the human heart, choosing darkness instead of light. And it may be that you're one of them. And God has very graciously been calling you. You've been coming for a number of weeks. My dear friend, do not turn away from God's gracious welcome. If we reject the welcome, then there's nothing to come but judgment. The terrible hardness of the human heart, but we see here also the perfect justice of God's judgment. I mean, it would be a terrible thing if God never judged. Perhaps you don't like the idea of God coming in judgment. But just think of the alternative, of God never coming in judgment. I mean, we have a sense of right and wrong, don't we? And we think some things just have to be judged. Imagine uh, your grandmother, and there's a drug addict who goes into her home and beats her up and leaves her in a terrible state just to take a few bits of money so he can go and buy his next uh, drug fix. And the man is caught, he's taken before the judge, and the judge says, oh, well, you said sorry, so let's just forget about it. I won't punish you. You'd say, that's a terrible thing. Justice demands that wrongdoing is punished. Well, the living God cannot just ignore human rebellion against him. Justice demands that wrongdoing is punished. Judgment will come, and it's entirely just. End of verse 15. And you, Capernaum, another place that saw with their own eyes the ministry of Jesus. Will you be exalted to heaven? Well, if you rejected Jesus, you should be brought down to Hades or to hell. And you know that there are various images in the Bible that are used to speak of hell, fire, exclusion, destruction. But those are all pictures. If you imagine what, what two of the images 
don't fit together. Fire and darkness. I've never seen fire and darkness at the same time. This is picture language. But it's picture language that speaks of a terrible reality, which is separation from God. And if you think about it, that's entirely just. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. See, what's someone saying in rejecting the offer of the gospel? They're saying, no, I don't want God in my life. And what is hell but God giving people for eternity what they've chosen? The absence of God, the source of all that is good in the world. It's entirely just. And yet notice as we close, the amazing grace of God. This judgment is what we deserve. But he's sending out these 72 to give warnings. And saying the judgment's coming, but for now there's the offer of peace. It's as if God is saying, only over the my son's dead body will anyone go to hell if you want to go to hell it'll be over my son's dead body i'm sending him to make it possible for you to be forgiven trust in him so as we close the christian life is a journey with jesus through life on the way to heaven but via the cross There'll be challenges and hardships on the way. And one of the challenges is to share our faith with others. And here we've seen some encouragements to do it. God is in charge, not us. And that should tell us we can do it. Perhaps you've tried before and you think, oh, I can't do it. It's just hopeless. But if God's in charge, not us, it means it's certainly not hopeless. How did you come to know the Lord God? Because of his amazing grace in opening your eyes. And what he's done for you, he can do for others. We can do it. God is in charge, not us. The next great truth, the gospel is liberating, not oppressive. And if we really understand that, not only will we begin to understand we can do it, I think we'll want to do it. Because this is the best message in the world. And then finally, judgment is a reality, not a fiction. And if we grasp that, not only will we think we can do it, we want to do it, we'll be thinking we must do it. Because judgment is coming. Let me pray. Loving Father, thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world as that first missionary that we might come to know you. And now we think of our tasks. You've sent us into the world. Please help us to be faithful. And so encourage us with these truths that we will be prepared to face the challenges of being your witnesses in the world. And we pray, have mercy on others through us that they might be brought to know the Lord Jesus Christ for themselves. And we pray in his name. Amen.